Mr. James Lavish, how are you doing today, my friend? Just look at all the global investment assets. $100 trillion of stocks, $110 trillion of bonds, $250 to $300 trillion of real estate. You've got $20 to $30 trillion of art and collectibles. You've got about $10 trillion of gold. And you just say that adds up to somewhere about, even if it's just $500 trillion. Look, you've got five, five investment firms that control $30 trillion of assets. You've got BlackRock, Vanguard, UBS, Fidelity, and State Street. That They, they control over $30 trillion of assets. 1% of $6 trillion is about $300,000 uh, Bitcoin. And then 2% is 603% is, is just about a million. So when you have a market shock and somebody comes out with a, with a huge order that has to sell and they can't get filled and it, and it forces that price way down and that interest rate way up, that's volatility and that's bad. Welcome back to the Fix the Money, Fix the World podcast that is brought to you by Amber, the only place I'm using to buy my Bitcoin. And today I want to quickly introduce um, a podcast that I just recorded with the one and the only James Lavish. James is a prolific thinker in the Bitcoin space. He has one of the fastest growing newsletters in the entire Bitcoin and broader macroeconomic space called The Informationist. And today we're going to break down some of his best newsletters that he's written recently. We're obviously going to talk about the debt spiral that is going on around the world. If the background of my screen didn't give that one away, we're going to be breaking down the $31 trillion of debt that threatens to break the great US empire. We also obviously talk about the dollar milkshake thesis. We talk about the currency crisis we're living through. Okay, so very interesting. I really hope you enjoy this one. Before we jump into it, I want to quickly give today's show sponsors a shout out. So starting out with Amber, they are a Bitcoin only exchange who have just rolled out to six 62 countries around the world, making us the fastest growing Bitcoin exchange out there. And to celebrate, they are giving all of you guys $10 of free Bitcoin. If you sign up with Amber today, all you need to do is press the link in the description of today's video. It's going to take you to a landing page that looks something like this. If it asks you for a promo code, promo code is Luke and then followed by the number one, Luke one. Very easy to remember. Highly recommend you check out Amber. They're a great company. And of course, Bitcoin only the Celsius debacle followed by uh, BlockFi and the recent FTX debacle should show you guys that you should not be trusting any shitcoin casinos, but you shouldn't even be trusting a Bitcoin only exchange like Amber. You shouldn't trust any exchange. That is the beautiful thing about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is about taking self-responsibility and not trusting anyone. That is why I'm also very happy to be sponsored by another Bitcoin only company and they produce something called a Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. This is a hardware wallet that lets you take custody of your Bitcoin in the easy and simple way. Um, obviously, guys, this is the cheapest um, hardware wallet on the market, um, and it is the easiest hardware wallet to use. I have used them all. I've used ledgers, trezors, cold cards. I've played around with it all, and I couldn't recommend the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet anymore. This is what they look like. They're a great little device, and they get even 5% cheaper if you use a promo code Bitcoin made simple, no spaces, Bitcoin made simple. Highly recommend you check them out. And while we're talking about sponsors, if you want some of the best Bitcoin clothing in the space, I highly recommend you guys check out a company called Hodling Apparel, okay? They make some amazing t-shirts, hoodies, sweaters, hats, you name it, they've got it. Hodling Apparel is a great company and they're giving all of my listeners today 20% off every purchase they make at the Hodling Apparel store. Um, again, promo code for this one will just be uh, BMS20. So that just stands for Bitcoin Made Simple and then the number 20. Very easy to remember. Links for all the sponsors will be in the description of today's video. Of course, I'm not going to recommend uh, sponsors or uh, products that I don't use myself. They're all great products and they're Bitcoin only. So I really hope you enjoy this interview with the one and the only James Lavish. I'll talk to you guys on the other side of it. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Fix the Money, Fix the World podcast. Today, I'm joined with a man who has created the most informative and probably fastest growing newsletter there is in the Bitcoin and the macro space. Mr. James Lavish, how are you doing today, my friend? Uh, awesome, Luke. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the kind words. 
Uh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, where are you these days? I think last time I saw you, you were in LA. Um, I know Pacific Bitcoin Conference is coming up. Are you traveling at the moment? Or? No, I'm actually, I'm, I'm at home. Uh, I'm in Las Vegas, and but I will be at the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. I'm, uh, I'm speaking there. I'm pretty excited. It's going to be a good show. So good, good place to see a lot of people that, you, uh, that, that have high signal. So I'm pretty excited. Speaking of high signal, um, I want to jump straight into one of your newsletters, James, and um, this podcast should be out before the Pacific Bitcoin Conference goes live. So anyone listening in, get on over to LA and watch James speak. It should be a uh, cracker of a conference, that one. Um, so maybe I really want to zoom out and maybe give people the big picture, uh, James, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty details of Bitcoin macro and um, all of all of that. Um, so I want to actually share my screen. I want to show a couple of charts uh, that you released in a recent newsletter. And this newsletter was titled, um, it was a Halloween special, and it was titled The Zombie Sovereign Apocalypse. So anyone listening in on the podcasting platforms, this is your signal to get on over to YouTube and uh, check out the video of this uh, interview because I want to pull up one chart right here. Um, and that is uh, the, is it the G7 nations, James? Yeah, this is the G7 and this is the end of 2021. So these numbers, uh, though they're directionally, they're all heading in the same direction as uh, as you can imagine. Uh, they're... Uh, they're a little bit stale, but for purposes of of our information, it, it's good enough, and it shows it demonstrates what we're what we're looking for. First, before we get into the numbers, you can just um, tell the listeners what a zombie corporation is, and then maybe uh, let the listeners know what gave you the inspiration to uh, start calling countries uh, zombie sovereigns, because that's the first time I've yeah. heard nation states actually be called sovereigns. I think it's a great analogy. So maybe just yeah. break that one down for the people. Yeah, no, it's a it, you know a zombie company is a company that is uh, it's operating in a deficit, right? So basically, if you if you look at your revenues and your um, you know your income and and your expenses, and many companies have debt, right? So and they service that debt uh, through their earnings. And if you're a normal operating company, you're and you're healthy, then you have a multiple of earnings to cover that debt. So say you've got a hundred million dollars of debt and you, you, uh, your income or your, your, you know, your net income is, is a billion dollars. Well, then you're servicing that debt without a problem. Right. So be in your, uh, before interest and taxes. So, um, but zombie companies don't cover their debt. So what happens is they have to issue more debt. So let's say they, they're, they're, Make, they, they have a hundred million dollars of, of interest payments, but they're only taking in eighty billion dollars of, of income before interest and taxes. So they can't really service that debt. So what do they need to do? They need to borrow more, and that's that's a that's a zombie company. So um, and if you look at the United States uh, and you look at these G seven companies that or these G seven countries that we that we had up on the screen there, um, none of them cover their debt. And that's the problem is they're, they're all operating in a deficit. So if you look at that, that right hand column all the way to the right hand side, you could see that everybody's, every country is operating in a deficit, which means that they, the only way that they can, they can fix that is either to cut spending, uh, or raise taxes or borrow more. So if you think through that, You've got cut spending. Well, people who are benefiting from those programs don't like it. So that's not that's not a uh, typically uh, a popular thing politically. So that's difficult to get through to cut spending. Austerity, as we've seen, is difficult to get through. I mean, just look at Italy, right? So, um, and then the second thing they could do is raise taxes. Again, that's that's not very politically popular across the board. Number one, number two. The problem with that is, is that long term it, it stifles uh, productivity. So your GDP would actually go down, and your income would actually go down as uh, your tax revenues would go down over time if you raise taxes. So that doesn't really work. And so the easiest thing to do is just issue more debt. And mm -hmm. the and so you and I have talked about this, and we've got all these countries who are issuing all this debt, and they're operating like zombies, mm -hmm. and they're in what we call a debt spiral, you know, or a, uh, and, 
it's a it's a debt trap and they can't get out of it and the problem is that your 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 interest and your your borrowing is growing at a faster rate than your income is than your tax base is so uh, once you get over a hundred percent debt to gdp it's very difficult to get that back down and and that's kind of the spot we're at and that's why we've been talking about the debt spiral uh, so much recently is that people are waking up to the fact that all these countries are operating in a deficit and they're just borrowing more and more and more and printing more and more money to to make it all work and it's a it's a house of cards built on debt and sooner or later some of those cards start to fall so and that's the problem and we're certainly watching a few of those cards uh, start to fall today. Um, and that's actually, before we get into the dollar milkshake, I want to add a little bit more color to that. Um, I think, was it Hirschman Capital who did a report in 2020 and they said, hey, look, uh, since the year 1800, 52 countries have reached debt to GDP of 130%. And out of those 52 countries, was it 51 of them have defaulted within 15 years? Um, yeah, it's something, it's something like that. It's like virtually all of them default. Once you get over 130, it's just, you can't come back. It's, and you know, the United States is, if you pull up, uh, it, that's actually because it's the end of 2021. If you, if you flow through numbers through 2022 on a pro forma, you're looking at really a debt to GDP of 137% now. And so, um, yeah, I mean, you can make the argument that the U.S. won't make it. However, it's the United States where, you know, the U.S. Treasury is the de facto uh, global global reserve asset. So the U.S. is in a different position. And when you look at all these countries, they're, they all have debt denominated in their own currency. So they can keep up this charade for a long time. And just look at Japan, 250% plus debt to GDP. Japan now owns over 50%, the Bank of Japan. The, the Japanese central bank now owns over 50% of government bonds. Just think about that. It's just ludicrous, right? Mm. So, but people have confidence that, that they can keep this going and they continue to invest in that, in that currency. Now, what we've seen over the, over the last year is that Japan, uh, and Luke, you and I have talked about this considerably. Um, Japan has been manipulating their yield curve so drastically that they're causing problems for their own currency, right? So if you, yeah, so if you pull up the, there you go, the 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 ten year yields, right, of all these countries, and it's it's it starts out simply as um, interest rate parity, right? So the United States leading the world in raising interest rates as we're trying to battle inflation. You know, Europe is a little bit behind. Uh, Great Britain is a little bit behind. Japan is way behind. And so what you what you see is that as we raise rates on our 10 year and Japan is doing the exact opposite, they have, de they have said the bank of Japan has, has declared that they're going to stand at, at the treasury auction and in, in the, uh, in, in the market for treasuries of the 10 year Bank of Japan, JGBs, and keep that interest rate at 0.25%. They're going to manipulate it to the point where it stays at 0.25% by buying anything anybody sells to make sure it stays there. Right. So the problem is as they're doing that and investors are selling those, those treasuries to them, well, they're receiving yen and they don't want to hold the yen because they know that what the Bank of Japan is trying to do is drive up inflation and they don't want to lose money on that trade. So they turn around and sell the yen. And of course, we're seeing that that it's it's been tremendous pressure on the yen over the last number of months. And the yen is down somewhere between 30 and 40 percent over the course of this year. And um you know, there has to be a there, the, the pressure builds up in the market and they're manipulating it and they're moving it. But the pressure has to be let out somewhere. And the release valve has been the yen. And that's what we're seeing. And so if you the last 10 year auction that just occurred over the last couple of days uh, for the, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of Japan bought every single one of those bonds. There was no buyers. And before that, last week or the week before, there were three or four days that that the market didn't even open. There were no trades. 
So now that 10 year trades by appointment because they have, they've been, they've, excuse me, they've manipulated it so drastically that there's, you know, the buyers are not even in the market. So if you look at their yield curve, it's got a hump in it right around that 10 year because they're, they're manipulating. They're keeping the, the, uh, the short term treasuries under one per, under zero. So they're negative real rate and then, uh, you know, negative nominal rate. And then they're keeping the 10 year at 0.25%. It's, it's absolutely insane what they're doing out there. And so I do think that the, the yen is, it's in trouble. You know, if they keep, if they keep doing this and the fed keeps raising rates, it's going to continue to be painful for them. So that was a long answer. I, I, I typically have long answers. I apologize. (laughs) Hey, I'm the exact same when I'm on podcast, mate. I can't shut up when I start talking about this stuff. It's fascinating. And that's why you're here. (laughs) No, don't be silly. Don't be silly. It's what we got you on for, mate. Break down the macro. Um, and I think Japan, I think that's a great point you make about them. I, I haven't seen many other people follow Japan as closely as you have been. So um, I definitely wanted to get you on and break down uh, the Japan situation because um, obviously Japan's a little bit of a unique one. They have that debt to GDP of 250 or 60 odd percent. And they're actually the one country out of those 52 countries that we mentioned earlier that haven't defaulted on their debt yet. Um, but when we start looking at, uh, maybe, maybe this is a good point to jump into the dollar milkshake thesis because you wrote a really good article on that, um, in your newsletter. Um, this is it up on screen for any of the listeners. Highly recommend you get around it and go and read, uh, James's, how many newsletters have you written, mate? There's a few in there. Uh, so I, it comes out every Sunday, every Sunday morning. And, you know, I mean, Luke, I started writing it because I, I realized that there's so much that we talk about. There's so many things in our world of, of finance, especially in institutional finance that we just throw around these acronyms and these terms and these concepts. And we think, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's second nature to a lot of people in my world. However, it's not taught in our schools. It's not taught even a lot of the stuff isn't taught in business school. And so I realized that, you know, there's some things that we can educate people on, especially. And so as I'm, I, I started to talk to people on Twitter about Bitcoin, about finance, about macro concepts, I realized that, you know, we throw around these things and, and it's kind of it's it's not kind of it's super opaque. And I and I'm sick of of Wall Street and institutional investors acting like they're holier than thou just because they know these terms and concepts. It's just a language. It's not like, it's not that difficult, right? So if you understand the underlying concepts, then you'll understand all of it. And so I started writing this informationist newsletter just to give people an understanding of what's going on in simple terms. So you could be, you could be somebody who's highly intelligent, but not educated in finance, like a, a Surgeons. I had a. I have a surgeon who, um, who, you know, my wife met out in the wild. He's like, wait, your husband is James Lavish. I read his newsletter, and so, which was <laughs> wild. But the thing is that you know, he's a really smart guy, and he just hadn't, you know, he hadn't been educated in in finance. Or you could, you know, I I've got um, uh, my sister in law is a nurse, and she's starting to understand these concepts, you know, um, and she's not actually, she's not a nurse. That, that's a, that's a, that's not fair. She's, uh, she's in the medical industry. She, she does respiratory, um, uh, you know, um, respiratory stuff. So, but she has no idea about the financial stuff, but this is helping her understand it, you know? And so, um, again, I've written it for, I think, 38 or I think it's 38 weeks. Um, and it's just something I sit down every Saturday morning. I, I, I start to talk about something that's kind of, uh, at the front of people's minds that, that we've been talking about a lot on Twitter, you're seeing the news or whatever, and just give people an understanding about it. So that's it. I love it, man. That's what it's all about. Like breaking down these really complicated terms. Um, like I think, uh, that's what your newsletter does really well. Like things like the dollar milkshake people, um, like a lot of new people who hear that a lot, especially recently, but they don't actually, um, know what it is. Um, but I think like a really, there's one chart that I've come across that kind of breaks down what the dollar milkshake 
theory is or what it's doing to countries and currencies around the world uh, better than most other charts. And that's this one here. Um, yeah. So it, I, I love this chart. Um, so maybe you can uh, break down briefly what the dollar milkshake theory is, sure. kind of pulling apart a couple of the themes from that really good uh, newsletter you wrote and then kind of uh, walk the listeners through what we're looking at on screen here. The DXY is is it's like an exchange rate that includes a bunch of different currencies. So you can see where the US dollar, how the US dollar is doing versus other currencies. And it was back in 1973 after Bretton Woods, um, we went to a floating exchange rate. And so they included the Euro, the yen, the pound, you can see there the, the Canadian dollar, uh, the Swedish krona and the Swiss franc. And for people who don't know that the SEK is a Swedish krona and the CHF is a, is a Swiss franc. And so, and that was just a way to uh, kind of measure how the dollar was doing versus all these other currencies because so many um, so many countries had pegged their their currencies to the dollar. And so, um, but as the U.S. dollar strengthens and other currencies weaken, it, it puts pressure on the countries who have U.S. dollar denominated liabilities. So it forces countries in in like emerging market emerging markets to either print more of their own currency or to buy more US dollars, which is kind of what we're seeing now is you're seeing all of these as the as the dollar goes up, it just it, it causes more problems. So especially if you have US dollar denominated debt, so or liabilities, Euro dollars, for instance. And so um, Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital came up with this concept. He's, he calls it the dollar, the dollar milkshake theory. And it, it comes from the old, uh, you know, oil drinking days where you'd have, buy a piece of land that you know is next door to a, another uh, piece of land that was oil rich. And so you would drill down and drill across and have a really long straw and slurp some of the oil out of, out of that, uh, that neighbor's land. And so that's where the, the that's kind of the the straw, the dollar, the, the milkshake theory, right? So if you talk about them, the milkshake uh, for the dollar is it would be the the milkshake is the foreign currency. So you're sitting across the the cafe, uh, right, Luke, and you've got a milkshake, and I'm on the other side, and I've got a really long straw, and I can dip my straw into your milkshake and drink it from all the way over there. Well, the milkshake is your foreign currency. The straw is the U.S. dollar denominated liabilities, the, the U.S. dollar denominated debt or euro dollars. And then the, U, the U.S. dollar is, is the one who's drinking, right? It's just taking all of those currencies or pouring it into their own milkshake, right? So, and that's kind of the theory. And we're seeing it happen. Uh, we're seeing it happen right now. As the do dollar gets stronger, it just it kind of feeds on itself. So... Uh, especially as the as the U.S. raises interest rates, and you then you have the interest rate parity uh, situation, and you know that's just simply where if your interest rate, if an interest rate, in, is exactly what we're talking about in um, with the yen. So I had a post recently about this, where if you just take the 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 uh, the ten year U.S. Treasury, and you uh, and you subtract out the 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 ten year Japanese Treasury, and you get that difference, right? And you chart it. If you look at that against the yen, it, it's a, it follows it exactly to you know that uh, that movement over the last year and a half, over the last year. And the reason for that is that interest rate parity, right? So if I can get a better interest rate in US denominated treasuries, I'm going to sell the Japanese denominated treasuries, sell the yen, buy US dollars and buy US treasuries. So it just, that's just, that's how it, that's how that parity works, right? And if you take it one step further, you'll, you'll hedge out your, your dollar yen exposure later it, with forwards, but you know, um, that that's a that that's an additional concept, but basically the 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 point to to th to know is as the U.S. Treasury raises our interest rates and Japan does not, then it causes all that pressure because it, it you know their central bank is diverging from the Fed, and so dollar milkshake. 
So I wanted to quickly interrupt today's podcast and let you guys know about some massive Black Friday sales that our sponsors are having this week, okay? So from the 22nd to the 28th of November, you guys can get 21% off this massive bundle deal being put on by Shift Crypto. You guys will know they make the Bitcoin-only hardware wallet called the BitBox 02. And for this week only, you guys can get a BitBox 02, a steel wallet, five tamper-proof evident bags that are great for traveling so that you know nobody's peeking into your goodies while you're traveling, and you can get three backup cards, all for 193 big ones. That is 21% off the normal price. And for this week only, from the 22nd to the 28th, you also get 10% off absolutely everything over at Shift Crypto. So I highly recommend you go and check that out. Get yourself a Bitcoin-only BitBox O2 hardware wallet. And of course, let's not forget about Amber. You guys know Amber has just rolled out to a lazy 62 countries this week, okay? So you guys can see from the Twitter page, we've rolled out in Canada, we've rolled out in India, we've rolled out in Germany, we've even rolled out here in El Salvador. So pretty much everywhere around the world, you can be stacking Bitcoin from a safe Bitcoin-only exchange. Now, to celebrate, Amber is giving you guys $10 of free Bitcoin just for signing up with the exchange. You don't even need to buy any Bitcoin. Just sign up and get $10 of free Bitcoin if you use the link in today's video description. Highly recommend you check Amber out. They're a great company, great Bitcoin-only company. Without further ado, let's get back into the rest of this interview with the one and the only James Lavish. Exactly. That's a great breakdown. And uh, what's really interesting about this kind of US dollar bull market is it's not just like these little emerging market con countries or Latin America or Asia having trouble with their currencies. It's literally the largest currencies all around the world. So um, I think you briefly touched on uh, the BOE earlier, the Bank of Japan, uh, the Euro, everything's all, all of the largest currencies in the world have lost 15 to 25 percent of their value against the dollar. So it's pretty, pretty outrageous to watch it all unfolding uh, like it is. Right. And so people are talking about, well, let's have another Plaza Accord, right? Mm -hmm. So back in back in 1985, uh, there was an agreement between the UK, West Germany, uh, France, Japan, uh, and the US where they would try to uh, depreciate the US dollars, they would actually go into the market and depreciate the US dollar. Then the US dollar had gotten so strong that it was, it had gotten so strong that it was actually hurting US exporters like the auto manufacturers and, and, um, and Caterpillar, you know, and so they argued to the politicians that, Hey, look, it's hurting GDP. It's going to hurt your tax revenues. We need to do something about this. And, and, uh, the, the, the United States capitulated and they came up with the Plaza Accord and, it, and it's called that because they had a meeting between all these uh, central bankers at the at the Plaza Hotel who decided that they were going to do this and they were going to depreciate the dollar. So people are like, well, let's do the same thing today. Well, first of all, the U.S. dollar is nowhere near as as strong on a lopsided basis as it was in, in back in the 80s. Right. So that's number one. Um, number two, we have a major inflation problem right now that the US dollar being stronger actually helps battle that. And that's because the US is a net importer, right? So the cost of goods being imported decreases as the US dollar gets stronger, right? So it actually helps inflation. So the Fed isn't going to rush out and manipulate the US dollar right now, knowing that it helps inflation. Number That's the second thing. And then, and then the last thing is like, if you look at the last Plaza Accord and those partners, well, a number of them folded into the EU, right? So now our major trade partners are the EU, the UK, Japan, and China, right? So, and China has absolutely no, uh, they have they have no motivation to do something that would make the, the, the yuan stronger. I mean, that wouldn't help their current, they, they have their own problems that they're dealing with and a stronger yuan is not going to help that. So um, really until the US dollar becomes so strong, Luke, that it starts to impact the US treasury market and make it disorderly, then as far as the Fed and the treasury are concerned, well, the, you know, everybody else is just going to have to deal with the stronger US dollar. So, um, we are seeing signs that the U.S. Treasury market is becoming less liquid, and that is problematic. 
And we've heard uh, we've heard Janet Yellen come out recently and say, "Look, we it, we'll we'll do what we have to do to make sure that that it stays liquid." And she talked about uh, doing a few things, and we can get into that if you like. But uh, the bottom line is, look, the Treasury market's got to stay liquid. It's got to stay uh, orderly, and until that happens, the Fed is going to stay on the path that they're on, which is raising rates. So that's my that's kind of my feeling on it. Couldn't agree more with you. Um, and I think in early 2020, that's actually what made the Fed come out with QE Infinity. Um, they didn't care about stocks crashing initially. I think there was a four week crash. Um, over four weeks, the S&P lost something like 20 or 25%, maybe 30% in four weeks. And the first three weeks, the treasury market was liquid, well, kind of, and it was pretty functional. But that last week of that crash, the treasury market started playing up a little bit, a little bit less liquidity, and obviously the Fed steps in with QE infinity. Um, so that's certainly a really good sign uh, that you're keeping an eye on. Again, you have written a, another great newsletter on the treasury market liquidity. So I'll definitely recommend uh, the listeners definitely go and check that one out. But um, just quickly, what are the, some of the signs there um, in the treasury market that ha kind of have you concerned? Yeah. So, I mean, well, there's a few things. Uh, you, number one, when you, when you, you kind of look at, first of all, you look at the auctions and you see how the auctions are doing and the auctions, have, they haven't been terrible, but they haven't been great. And so, you know, your ten, the 10 year is kind of your benchmark and watching the 10 year. Well, we've had a number of tailing auctions in a row. And what that means is, the, there's a the market trades when issued, right? So the the Treasury announces that they're going to have this auction for the bonds, and they're regular. There's, you know, there's hundreds of them throughout the year, right? So, but you know when that auction is going to be, and then they allow it to trade when issued, prior to the prior to the actual auction, right? So the way an auction works is that those trade when issued, and then they have uh, something that's called a Dutch auction. Right. So um, I, I go into this in, in one of my newsletters and it breaks it down very simply for people if they want to see it. But I think it's called when, when Treasury auctions fail or, or break down. So but the point is that they the, the Dutch auction means that the the buyers of these treasuries, OK, the, these commercial banks go in there and they, they bid for the treasuries, but they bid at a certain rate for a certain amount. And then they, they're, they're kind of locked into where those bids are as that auction happens. And then the treasury goes in and says, okay, well, we'll we're going to sell the treasuries up to this percentage, um, this interest rate, in order to fulfill what we're trying to sell, the amount we're trying to sell. And so that's the Dutch auction. You may or may not get filled. And if you get filled, you'll get filled at or below your the your bid so whatever interest rate you bid at okay okay so knowing that you know that the auction ends at a certain interest rate but the win when the win issued market had been trading at a different interest rate typically and if that win issued interest rate is lower than the auction interest rate it means the auction wasn't that great that win issued market thought it was going to go better than it did and so the reality is that the demand wasn't there at the interest rate that people thought it was going to be. And so the difference there is the tail. And so if that tail is big, now we're talking about basis points here, you know, one, two, three basis points. If you get like four, five, six, seven basis points, that's like, that's almost catastrophic for the amount of money and the size of the, the, the treasury market we're talking about. So we haven't seen that yet in the 10 year, but we have seen a number of tailing auctions, which means that it's not as good as people thought it was going to be. Um, now you also have the BTC, which is a big to, to cover. There's been enough demand, but again, there's going to be a time where there's not enough demand. And that's what the, that's what the treasuries, the, the treasury in Yellen, that's what they're watching. The second thing is you're watching the actual open market, the, the trading of these treasuries and how liquid it is. Well, so there, there are a number of, of uh, indices that show this, right? So um, one of the, one indice is, uh, is, a, is the Bloomberg vol, um, 
liquidity index. And so you can see on there and it really maps very closely to what's called the move index. Um, and I think it's a Bank of America uh, index and it shows it shows um, the option trading uh, on, in the market and, and, it, and it implies a volatility. And so why does that matter? Well, if something's very volatile, it means that there's not a lot of liquidity, right? There's not a lot of buyers and sellers at all these price points really close to the, the last sale. So if it's moving up and down quite a bit, it's got to move enough to get filled, those orders to get filled. So there's not a lot of liquidity. That's bad. You want a lot of, lot of liquidity. Why? Well, because when you have a market shock and somebody comes out with a, with a huge order that has to sell and they can't get filled, and it, and it forces that price way down and that interest rate way up, that's volatility and that's bad. And so you're watching that index and the higher that index number is, the worse it is. And those and that index number is getting right, It's I think it's above the 2020 March levels already. And so that's, that's concerning. And so again, that's why you've got Janet Yellen coming out and saying, okay, we're, we have an idea what we're gonna do is we're going to we're going to tr we're going to trade with the uh, with the holders these commercial banks that hold these bonds. We're going to buy some of those bonds that don't trade so much from them. Okay, so these are long dated thirty year treasuries, and they're called off the run. Why are they called off the run? Because uh, back in the day, back when I started, we'd actually walk into the bond room and the bond trading room, and they'd have these sheets and you, they were on those dot matrix printers where they had the holes on each side of the sheets, you tear it off, right? But they had reams and reams and reams of these, you know, bond issues that they were looking at every day, right? So you didn't have computers like we do now. So you'd actually look up the bond in your sheet to see what the what the what the price is, what it should be, you know, where it traded last yesterday and whatever, but that's called on the run. And if it wasn't on that sheet, it's off the run. It didn't trade enough. And so you're like, I don't want to trade this. That's what they're they're looking at. Is they're saying, well, there's some there's some bond issues that are just not liquid enough that we'll buy from the commercial banks and we'll sell them instead. We'll sell them some shorter dated treasuries, some T-bills or notes that are under 10 years that will be pretty liquid. And that will actually help those uh, banks own shorter term paper because you can only hold so many treasuries on your, on your balance sheet. So again, a long answer, but that's kind of what we're looking at. A long, but a good answer. Um, I thought that was a great breakdown. I, I think, a, I think a, a good way to look at it for new people entering the space is uh, for the first time in 50 years, nobody's buying US treasuries. So Japan, China, Russia's completely de-dollarized. All the largest buyers of treasuries in the world, they're, they're all not only not buying US treasuries, but they're aggressively dumping them and trying to create their own reserve currency. Um, James, I wanted to ask you about the geopolitics. Uh, what do you think about the BRICS nations trying to create a new reserve currency and opt out of the petrodollar system um, and using the US dollar as the reserve currency? Yeah, I mean, if the, the BRICS system with Brazil and Russia and India, China uh, and, and South Africa, you know, um, they're they're looking at the U.S. Treasury and they know, I mean, the geopolitics there is and I don't know who's leading it, whether it's Xi or whether it's uh, uh, whether it's Putin, but <laughs> I'm not going to claim I know. So but speculatively on the outside. It makes sense for them to be absolutely sick of, and Putin actually did, uh, he did state this. He doesn't want to sell oil, receive U.S. treasuries, and have those devalue in the market over time because of inflation, right? So if you think about it this way, as, as, a, dollar, as a dollar inflates, you're getting paid back on those U.S. treasuries with dollars that are worth less than when you bought them right? When they were issued, when you bought them. So they're sick of it. They don't, they know that we are in a debt laden economy and that all of us, United States, Europe, Japan, uh, the UK, we're all just printing to oblivion to keep, to keep propping this up. And they know that, and they know that we're going to continue to let inflation run over 2% in order to inflate away some of this debt. 
So that's why they're doing it. It's really, uh, you know, it has to do with being able to separate themselves from being beholden to the U.S. dollar. And it's just a good financial move. I mean, if, I, if I've got oil on the ground, I'll keep it there rather than selling it for U.S. treasuries and having that be worth less tomorrow than it is today. So... I couldn't agree more. Um, you know what else is a good move? Um, I actually heard this on a podcast the other day. Uh, so obviously Putin exports a lot of his uh, oil and natural gas uh, to Europe. Now that these Nord Stream pipelines have been blown up, Russia's exporting less and less oil and gas to Europe on top of the sanctions in early 2022 that already restricted the amount of oil and gas Putin was exporting. Um, well, have you seen the chart of the hash rate going parabolic recently, James? It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah. And I, you know, I, 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 maybe you have a better explanation for it. I think that we, we've seen a lot of, a uh, lot of machines, ASICs come onto the market for very cheap, uh, and they're being plugged in. Um, and, uh, and people are, anticipating a, a move by the Fed and they want to be mining ahead of that because they want to have the optionality of Bitcoin as the ultimate risk on asset right now. But that's just that's just an, an investment side. What, do you, what are you seeing? What do you think? I, I see a little bit of that as well. I've heard those rumors, lots of new mining rigs are getting plugged in. I also heard somebody else who's a little bit more um, into the whole technical side of the space say that they found some more efficiencies in the Bitcoin miners. Um, I haven't had the chance to dig into that. I'm a little bit of a technical dumbass when it comes to the whole mining side of things. I, I, I keep in my lane and just talk macro. Um, but a theory that I... Yeah, I, uh, something that crossed my mind was it, it wouldn't be outrageous that obviously Putin has so much cheap oil and cheap natural gas in Russia. Um, he's now exporting less to Europe because of the number of reasons we mentioned earlier. Um, wouldn't surprise me if he's uh, using the, all of that cheap, free, abundant energy to uh, plug in some ASIC miners. Um, and, we wouldn't, and we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know. They could be out in Siberia and we would have no idea. Yeah. So it's a good, that's, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It could absolutely be a, a huge geopolitical move. And this goes into an article that you wrote recently that, you know, uh, these, these BRICS countries are, are sick of being, being hold, beholden to the dollar. And if they can trans, if they can transfer into a base currency that's hard money, you know, uh, gold and, and or Bitcoin, they're going to do it, you know? And so they've got oil, but not all of them do. So, and, but if that, if that currency can be based in something that's, that's, uh, that's hard. Yeah. It would, it would make sense at least for the long, long term. Yeah. Oh yeah. And when we start talking about the long term and the demand uh, for Bitcoin, I wanted to kind of close it on a little bit of a, maybe a more positive uh, note. We've talked a lot about the demise of the fiat system and how it is inevitably uh, going to crash. And I wanted to quickly have a look at one of uh, a little short thread that you put out it was a little while ago, uh, but you're talking about where and how Bitcoin gets to $1 million per coin, pure math. Um, maybe you can break this little short thread down for the listeners and outline how you see Bitcoin becoming um, a larger part of um, asset managers' portfolios moving forward into the future. One of the things that, that we haven't really seen is the widespread institutional adoption of Bitcoin as a separate asset class. And I do believe that that is going to happen eventually. Um, and so, you know, the numbers in that thread are a little bit different now than they, than they were then because all of these, uh, all of these investment assets are, are down uh, huge since then. Um, but if you look at stocks and you figure there are about a hundred and a hundred trillion dollars worth of stocks in the world, just look at all the global investment assets. Okay. If you look at stocks, bonds, you got, uh, you know, a hundred, uh, trillion dollars of stocks, 110 trillion dollars of bonds. You've got, um, 300, 250 to 300 trillion dollars of real estate. You've got 20 to 30 trillion dollars of art and collectibles. You've got about 10 trillion dollars of gold. Need to say that adds up to somewhere about, even if it's just 500 trillion dollars. And then your M2 is over 100 trillion dollars. That's 600 trillion dollars. That's a total of, of, of 600. 
um, trillion dollars uh, of global investment assets and cash. And so if you just look at the 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 major players, the the institutional investors, then you use a, a conservative one to three percent asset allocation, um, say in the next 10 years, because they realize that this is a separate asset class. This is actually a store of value. Uh, eventually it is a, is a place that they're want, they're going to they're going to reallocate some of their portfolio out of stocks out of bonds out of real estate you know out of gold into this this separate asset class well just 1% of of 6 trillion dollars is about $300,000 uh bitcoin and then 2% is 603% is is just about a million so um you know, and but the really important thing here, Luke, is is how and and uh, and eventually why that happens, and it's because of the breakdown of that of that sixty forty portfolio, right? And eventually, these these investors are going to realize they need something that's going to be a hedge against long term M two expansion. You know, so when that money supply expands so rapidly. And we have all these programs that we that were putting money into people's pockets to go spend on assets. Well, you're going to need something to to hedge against that inflation, right? Not everybody can go out and buy an extra house, you know. Not everybody can can, uh, and not everybody wants to be fully invested in stocks. You're not going to want to be invested in bonds because you're not going to get a real rate return on that. You're you're going to lose money on that. Um, on real rates that it's going to the inflation is going to be at or above the 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 interest rate you're going to get on those bonds and and investors are going to realize that gold is not it, it it can be manipulated with paper and and uh and it has been for decades um so it's difficult to hold gold as uh as a physical asset you can buy coins or whatever but obviously the easiest most liquid hardest you know, the, the, the least, uh, the, the one that you need the least trust with, you don't have counterparty risk in, you know, is, is Bitcoin. It settles in just a, a few minutes and you can move just about as much as you want pretty cheaply. So they're going to realize that. But the really, the big point here is that, look, you've got five, five investment firms that control $30 trillion of assets. You've got BlackRock, Vanguard, UBS, Fidelity and State Street that they they control over thirty trillion dollars of assets. BlackRock's already involved, Fidelity's already involved, and so when those firms they when they come out with products and in their own portfolios that they're investing a a portion of their capital in Bitcoin alone, every other firm is going to have to follow. You're you're just going to have to do it. So. That's how powerful that institutional world is, and I do think it does. It does happen, and that's how we get there. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think the same way you see competitive devaluation amongst fiat currencies to kind of uh, manage their exports geopolitically, you're going to see a very similar kind of competitive allocation to Bitcoin. Um, as when one asset manager allocates the Bitcoin and Bitcoin goes up two or three hundred percent, these other guys are going to have to jump on board, and it's just going to be a big domino effect. Um, that's right. That's right. That's right. James, um, I want to be respectful of your time, my friend. Um, I know that you have another call coming up. Um, I do. So, I'm sorry about that. It, I'd love, no. we could talk about this for hours. We could, Easily. but I do have another call. I've got to get on. So, but I <laughs> we, appreciate it, Luke. No, no, no worries at all. We could quite easily talk about this for hours. Um, James, thank you so much for coming on, my friend. Um, are there any uh, final comments or places that the listeners um, can send any uh, emails to you? And uh, where do they sign up uh, to your newsletter? And tell us a little bit about Looking Glass Education if you've got 30 seconds free. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Looking Glass, is, is, it's, a, um, it's an educational platform online, super simple, super easy to sign up for. Uh, it does be Seb Bunny, um, uh, Dahlia Plot, uh, Jason Sansoni, um, Max, and and Greg Greg Foss is the guy who actually pulled me into that. Uh, you know, we founded this platform, and those guys are the ones who are doing all the work. You know, um, that they're really in there every single day, and they built this uh, this educational platform out. But it's a simple course that you can go through to learn about money. 
And uh, and eventually, you know, you understand why Bitcoin is the answer to all so many problems that that the manipulated money has caused. And so you can just sign up for the course. You can do it uh, at your at, on your own time. You can do it. You can binge it and do it all in a weekend, uh, or you can do a little bit each night. However, however works for you. But it's a great way to understand the financial world and money and why Bitcoin is the hardest asset out there, why it's the hardest money out there. So that's uh, that's a really, really awesome, awesome, awesome project uh, that I'm that I'm th thankful to be a part of. But I can't claim that I'm that I'm, uh, you know, one of the 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 leading, uh, you know, uh, builders of it. These guys are the ones who are doing all the work. So um, that's the first thing uh, that you can find me on Twitter. I'm always on there. Uh, just James Lavish. It's just at James Lavish for Twitter. And my newsletter is in my profile, my Substack, or there's a little banner you can sign up for through through Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's free. The information is, is free and and it comes out each week. Uh, and if you want to if you want to uh, talk to me, you can always respond to something on my um, in one of my tweets or uh, you can just respond to one of the newsletters. I try to answer all of them. I'm a few months behind now. It's it's a little bit overwhelming, but I, I do uh, I do try to answer all of the emails I get on the information. So it is a little bit difficult sometimes catching up on emails and uh, comments, especially on Twitter. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Uh, Bitcoin education is something everyone needs to focus on, and uh, you guys are doing great work. Um, I recently actually had Foss um, on the podcast just last week, and we talked about Looking Glass education a little bit there. So, um, awesome. Jane. Thanks for all you guys are doing. It's amazing. Um, and thank you so much for your time today. Um, I'll let you run. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Luke. Always like talking to you and we'll do it again soon. Thank you. The feeling's mutual. See you, mate. Have a great day. So what did you guys think of that interview with the one and the only James Lavish? I really hope you enjoyed it and you got some value from it. If you did, Feel free to like the video here on YouTube and subscribe to the channel. And if you do have a spare second or two, give us a nice review on uh, Spotify or give us a bad review. It doesn't worry me. Let me know in the comments down below what you thought of it. And obviously, come hit us up on Twitter. James and myself spend pretty much 24 hours a day on Twitter. It is a little bit of an addiction. Um, but without further ado, I hope you guys really enjoyed that one. But I think it can be safe to say a good summary from that episode is the Fiat Ponzi is absolutely, inevitably going to break. And there is only one solution and that is Bitcoin. I would like to thank James again for his time for popping on. I hope that you guys got some value from it um, and I'll see you guys in the next podcast. If you have anyone that you would like me to interview, you have any suggestions, let me know. Drop them in the comments down below. Send me a DM on Twitter. I reply to everyone. I really do try to uh, catch up on all of my DMs. So reach out and I would love to hear from you guys. And until I see you again, I'll talk to you guys in the next podcast.